Thank you. If you'd open your Bible, please, the book of Acts. Acts chapter 16, please. Acts chapter 16 in your Bible. And as soon as you get it, stand to your feet with me and we'll read God's Word together. Acts chapter 16. I'll begin reading in verse number 25. And follow with me in your Bible, if you will, please. At midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God. And the prisoners heard them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately the doors were opened, and everyone's bands were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awakening out of his sleep, and seeing the prison doors open, drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. The reason for that is under Roman law, the prisoner or the, the jailer was responsible for the safety of the prisoners. And were they to escape, he would be held responsible even with his entire life. And so you can see why he was thinking about taking his own life before he would be tortured and punished. And Paul cried with a loud voice, verse 28, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we're all here. And then he called for a light, and he sprang in and came trembling. Notice the word trembling. And he fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? A profound question. It gets right to the point. Would that every unsaved person would ask that question sincerely. What must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved and thy house. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord. I would assume that means they gave him a fuller explanation of the gospel. And they spoke to all that were in his house, and he took them the same hour of the night, washed their stripes. He was baptized, he and all of his, straightway. Thank you, and you may be seated. I have been calling this Forgiveness February. Forgiveness February. The idea is that I'm speaking all month long on how to have forgiveness of sin. There's not a more important question that anybody can ever ask of their own conscience and their own soul. No matter who you are, what state of spiritual, uh, uh, no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, there's no more important question could ever be asked. Because you see, forgiveness is man's absolute greatest need. The greatest need that people have is not their need here on earth with any of the physical necessities or the psychological things that we think about, the greatest need I have is a spiritual need. It is how can I be forgiven so that I can be with the Lord? Because sin separates us from God. The Bible clearly, unmistakably teaches that. Sin separates me from the presence of God. And so there are three classes of people sitting in this audience today and watching via television, the Internet, and so on. All three classes need 
to understand forgiveness, one really as much as the other. Who are the people to whom I speak? First of all, they're the unsaved. If you're not saved today, if you have not come into a personal, born-again relationship with Jesus Christ, then you, your greatest need is to be saved, to be forgiven of your sins so that you can go to heaven when you die so that you can have eternal life. The second class of people I speak to are believers, Christians. Most of my audience here today, of course, is made up of people who are saved people. You're Christians. You, you have made a profession. You sincerely trust in Christ as your Savior. But how can you be forgiven? Because, you see, we still need forgiveness as much after we're saved as we did before we were saved, just in a different sense. Because we need to be forgiven of those daily sins, those things that come into our life, those temptations that we routinely deal with in life. And we need forgiveness from our sins just as much after we're saved as we did before we were saved. And then there's a third class. I won't spend a lot of time with them, but that is the person who claims to be a Christian but has lived away from the Lord for a long time. We call them backsliders, people who made a profession of faith. If I asked them, are you a Christian, they'd say, yes, I'm a believer. But the reality is there's not one bit of fruit in their life. There's not any evidence, whatever, that they're genuinely saved, that there's ever been a conversion experience. And they need forgiveness. Either they're saved and they need to learn how to get rid of the sin that has crept into their life that takes them away from the Lord, or they're not saved, and they need to come to Christ for the very first time in their life. So three classes of people today, the unsaved, the clearly unsaved, I know that I need Christ. I know that I'm lost. Secondly, the saved. And thirdly, the backslider who's lived away from the Lord a long time, the prodigal son or daughter, and they need to come either home or they need to be saved. Now, how then are the unsaved forgiven of their sins? How are the unsaved forgiven? And we have one of the best and simplest accounts in all the Bible of it in the story of this jailer. It happened in a little town called Philippi. I've been privileged to be able to go to Philippi and see the very place that that jail was located according to the people who live in that area. And the jailer in the midst of a crisis, in the middle of an emergency, with an earthquake shaking the very building where he had uh, his prisoners uh, jailed there. He comes out believing that all the prisoners are going to escape and he's going to pay with his life. And he had noticed the difference in two of the prisoners, Paul and Silas. And These men had been beaten, and their backs were bleeding. Their feet were in stocks in a very uncomfortable position. You could say they were being tortured even. And with the building almost ready to fall down, he comes out, and I call your attention to the word trembling. He's trembling, and he falls down before them. He bows down before them on his knees, on his face in a posture of submission, if you will. And he says to them one simple question that cuts right through all the chase. 
What must I do to be saved? Now, I want you to look at verse number 31. I hope you'll mark it in your Bible because it's one of the one of the greatest verses on salvation you could imagine. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. That was his answer. The word believe, though, has been badly misinterpreted by people in contemporary English because the word means much more than what many people today think about. When we say believe something, we talk about just believing a fact intellectually. Do you believe that George Washington was the first president of the United States? Yes, I believe that. But it has no impact on, the, on your life at all. It's just an intellectual fact. It's just like believing how many feet are in a mile. And it has no impact whatever on your life. But the word believe there in the Greek language has this idea. When you believe something, you completely, you put complete trust in that something. Total trust, if you will, is the meaning of believe. It means to have faith in something. It means to depend upon something. It means to rely fully and completely upon something. Do I believe in my doctor? Yeah, I believe in him. But all I've ever done is go and visit him and get a pill or a shot. Now I find out I've got a critical illness, and they're going to have to do heart surgery on me. And I'm lying on the table looking up into the face of the man, and you say, do you believe in your doctor? Now it's a different story altogether. I completely am putting my life and my trust in his hands. If he makes a mistake, I could be gone from this planet. And so here the word believe has that same connotation. It is total trust. It is depending upon, relying upon, having confidence in to such a degree that I completely put my soul and my eternal life into the hands of that one. And when Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, he didn't just mean in a general vague sense to believe in Jesus Christ. He didn't mean to believe in the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount for salvation because you can't get saved from the Sermon on the Mount. He didn't say believe in a parable because the parables are not the plan of salvation for the most part. Some of them have a little bit of it in it. He meant believe in what Jesus Christ did in six lonely hours when he hung on the cross for our sins. That's salvation. See, Jesus was the greatest ethical, moral teacher in all of history. However, ethical, moral teaching is not salvation. The so-called liberal churches of our day, they focus upon ethical, moral teaching, how to treat other people, how to be a good person, a good neighbor, how to be a humanitarian, but there's no salvation in that. Salvation is in the blood that Jesus Christ shed on the cross. Without the shedding of blood is no remission of sin, Hebrews chapter 9 tells me. And in those lonely hours on the cross, hanging naked up there before the whole world, the Lord Jesus Christ poured out his blood his hands were pierced. The thorns were upon his brow. He suffered. He was beaten. He was spat upon. He was, he was cursed. He suffered like no one ever suffered. And he did it 
to pay the penalty for the sins of the world, as I reminded you last week. Now, that's salvation. Trusting, relying upon, depending upon, putting my confidence in what Jesus did for me on the cross. Ladies and gentlemen, you've just heard the gospel. That's as clear as the gospel can be said, by me at least. I don't know how to say it any clearer. That Jesus took my place. He was my substitute. He paid my penalty. And Paul didn't tell this man, notice, he didn't tell the man to confess his sins. Why, that old boy had so many sins, he would have forgotten one of them, and then he'd been up the creek, wouldn't he? No, Paul didn't say, confess your sins. He said, believe. He didn't even tell him to pray. A lot of you think that you have to pray to be saved. Let me give you a little insight. He never mentioned prayer. Because you're not saved by the prayer that you pray. You're saved by faith, by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Hear me. Paul didn't say a word about baptism. He didn't mention keeping the law or the Ten Commandments. Paul didn't mention to the man, you have to observe the sacraments. He didn't even say you have to join the First Baptist Church of Philippi. He never mentioned any of that stuff that people talk about. He didn't even use the word repentance. I used to have a woman come to church here. Now she's in heaven. Every time I'd preach on the plan of salvation and I didn't mention repentance specifically and dwell on she'd come up and instruct me and try to tell me that I had missed part of it, that you have to repent. The Bible says you have to repent. Let me tell you about this fellow here. He had already repented. Good night, he's trembling. <laughs> he's down on the ground. <laughs> he's bowed down on his knees. He's looking up at Paul like a whipped dog. I just want to know what I have to do to be saved. And Paul didn't say confess, and he didn't say repent, and he didn't say pray, and he didn't say join the church. He said believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Now, here's what I want you to get, though. God dealt with an unsaved man as his judge, he dealt with him as a condemned prisoner. That's the way God deals with unsaved people. If you're here today and you're not saved, in God's sight, you are a condemned person. Please don't. You know, in, in this politically correct, this PC world we're living in today, if a preacher uses the word condemned, somebody will go away from the church and say, oh, they condemn me there. Open your Bible to John chapter 3 and verse 18. And I've got a little bit of news from you, and it's not from the preacher. It's from the Word of God. He that believeth not is condemned already. You were condemned before you ever walked in the door. In fact, you've been condemned ever since you've been. Because we're under the sentence of death because we were born in sin, and in sin did our mother conceive us. So the preacher didn't condemn you. Until you're saved, you're under the condemnation of, of the Lord. By the way, when Jesus said that, he said that to Nicodemus when he was explaining the plan of salvation in the same context as John 3.16. He couldn't have been more loving, but he said, Nicodemus, until you believed, you're under the sentence of death. You are condemned. And so, 
God deals with the unsaved as their judge. He deals with us not only as our judge, but the Bible says we're dead in trespasses and sins. I have a body, and it is alive before I'm saved, or it was alive before I was saved. I have a mind, emotions, and will. They're alive before I was saved, my soul. But my spirit was dead. And when the Lord came into my life, he energized my spirit. The spirit came alive because the Holy Spirit entered into me. There's only one message for the unsaved. If you're here today or you're listening to me somewhere today, and you have not been saved, S-A-V-E-D, good old Bible word, saved from your sins, saved from hell. If you have not been saved, the only word you need to hear today is believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. That's all Paul said to the man, wasn't it? Now, what happened to that man after that? Well, let me tell you what happened. Four things real quick, if you want to write them down. What happens when a person gets saved? Well, number one, God forgives every sin. Now, he doesn't just put a line through it or blot it out for no reason at all. The basis of him forgiving our sins is that Christ has already paid the penalty for our sin. And so God now can forgive sin because Jesus has canceled the sin. He's canceled the sin debt by his shed blood on the cross. Number two, the jailer now has the penalty of sin canceled forever. When you get saved, the penalty of sin is canceled. The condemnation that I just momentarily, uh, or just mentioned ago, the condemnation is canceled out. We're no longer under the penalty, the sentence for our sins when we receive Christ as our Savior. So what happened to that jailer? God forgave every sin he had ever committed. He canceled the penalty for sin, which is hell. Number three, he put inside of him a new nature. The Bible says that we are new creatures in the Lord Jesus Christ when we come to him in repentance and faith. And number four, this man was immediately and instantly born into God's family. Listen to this verse, John 1 and 12. As many as received him, who is him, Christ? As many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God. And so when I trust in Christ, when I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, I become his son. I'm born into his family. He is now my heavenly father, and I am his child. I'm a child of the king. Now, but listen to me. Hear me. We're talking about how God deals with unsaved people. The sinful nature that that old jailer had was not eradicated. God had forgiven him. He canceled out the penalty of his sins in hell forever. He put in him the Holy Spirit and produced a new nature. He's born into God's family and is now the child of God. But his old nature, his sinful tendency and propensity was not eradicated. 
He still has that. I still have it. You still have it. And so sinful thoughts and sinful words, sinful motivations, sinful deeds plague us. And we're tempted every day that we live after we're saved. You never get to the point of perfection. You'll never get to where you don't sin. Inward sins that nobody sees. You know, it's been a long time since I got drunk. Been a long time since I went to jail. Well, I really haven't ever gone to jail. Been a long time since I've done those outward things that everybody can see. But do you know what I deal with? I deal with pride. Boy, y'all are looking sanctimonious on me right now. Like you're the only one in the room that ever has a thought of pride. No, we all deal with Mr. P, don't we? We all fight that battle every single day. I deal with pride. I deal with lust. I deal with covetousness. I deal with envy and greed and a temper. And you know what? If you've been saved as long as I have, you deal every day with self-righteousness. And if there's anything I hate, it's self-righteousness. If there's anything Jesus hated, it's self-righteousness. And I see it in tendencies in my own self because I've been saved a long time. And I'm not out there. I'm not out there doing the very wicked things, but... Do I think I'm better because I don't? And so pride wells up and self-righteousness. So I'm dealing with things. Every day that I get up and go through my life, I'm dealing with things, and I look at those things, and I don't like them, and yet that old nature was not eradicated. Hell, I wish it were. So it'd be so much easier, wouldn't it? And you read the seventh chapter of Romans, and particularly down there about verse 15 and so on, and Paul talks about this conflict that he constantly has, temptation to do wrong, and yet that inner nature, the Holy Spirit telling him to do right and the conflict that that creates, and we all face it once we've been saved. So that's how God deals with the sins of the unsaved. He deals with them as a judge. And his one word for the unsaved today, if you're not sure you're saved, is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put your total confidence and trust in him for your salvation. Number two, how does God deal with believers' sins? Now, go to another passage with me. It's 1 John chapter 1. And, oh, it's a wonderful, wonderful passage. 1 John chapter 1, and a passage that no doubt you're very familiar with. Begin in verse 5 with me. This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light, and in him is no darkness or wrongdoing or sin at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And look at this, the blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanseth us from how much sin? All sin. But if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us. How many of our sins? That all comes back into play. And to cleanse us from 
all unrighteousness. And note verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. We're calling God a liar because he says we all have sinned and his word is not in us. Now, this is really important. Try to grasp this with me. Before salvation, God deals with me, with you, with every person as a judge would deal with a lawbreaker because we've broken his law. We're not his children. We have no relationship with him. We're dead in trespasses and sins. But the moment that you're saved, here's what happens. God changes his relationship with you. He now is your heavenly father, and he deals with you as a father deals with a little child. What a change. Instead of God dealing with us as a judge, righteously judging a person who is outside the law, God now changes his relationship with me, or I change mine with him, and I am his little child, and he deals with me as a loving father deals with his child. There are two words you've got to get really familiar with. Relationship is the first one. When I become God's child, when I'm saved, I am in his family. I'm born into his family. A relationship is established, and it can never change. I have three children sitting in this audience today, thank God, and all of them call me dad. And we have a relationship, and that will never change. That's an unchangeable fact of life. If, God forbid, one of them would get off the track and do something very, very horrible, would they still be my child? Absolutely. Relationship can't change. Now, there's a second word to understand. That's fellowship. It's used here a couple times. Fellowship. Fellowship depends upon our behavior. Our relationship is fixed. It will never change. It has nothing to do with my behavior. But my fellowship has everything to do with my behavior. And so the little child disobeys the mother or father. The little child acts disrespectfully or, or, or does something very, very bad. The relationship doesn't change. The fellowship is what changes. And if I am God's child and I sin and I don't deal with it the way his word instructs me to, then my relationship doesn't change. I don't lose my salvation, but I lose my fellowship. And it is though God is a million miles away and a number of things happen when my fellowship is broken. Unconfessed sin in my life breaks my fellowship with God. The first thing that happens, it seals my lips. I'm not going to tell people about the Lord Jesus and what he's done in my life when I know there's unconfessed sin in my life. The reason most Christians don't really witness for the Lord as they should, well, I won't say most, but many, many, much of the time, it's because there's known sin in their lives, unconfessed sin. And, and they don't want to be hypocritical, so they just don't say anything. And then the other thing that happens when my fellowship is broken, it keeps my prayers from being answered. 
Psalm 66 and 18 says that if iniquity is found in my heart, the Lord won't, won't hear me. So I waste my time trying to pray until my sins have been forgiven. And thirdly, unconfessed sin in my life prevents me from being filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit produces this wonderful fruit in my life, love, joy, peace. The very things everybody here wants in your life, everybody in this house and watching today, you want love, and you want joy, and you want peace, and that's a fruit of the Spirit. But do you know what? You can't be filled with the Spirit. You can't bear the fruit of the Spirit if there's unconfessed sin that's rampant in your life and is controlling your life. And since none of us never sin, there's not a single soul in the house. Go back to 1 John 1 and 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And so... I must deal with my unconfessed sin. How does God then deal with the sins of his children? Go to 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9. It's so familiar. I would think that about half this audience or more could quote this verse, but I still want to analyze it with you a little bit. I want you to know the first word there, if, because forgiveness is not automatic. Forgiveness is conditional. If. I confess my sins. So if I don't confess my sins, the rest of the verse is nullified. I am not going to have forgiveness. Forgiveness is contingent upon confession. If we, second word, this is written to the saved. Look in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. The entire book is written to my little children. Chapter 2, verse 1. That's Christians. The book of 1 John is not a book to go to to learn how to be saved. It's a book to go to to learn how to live for the Lord, how to have a relationship or a fellowship with the Lord Jesus. In, in verse 7 up there, it talks about we have fellowship with him and with one another because the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from sin. So we there is written to save people, to my little children, to to most of you. So my forgiveness is conditional based upon confession. My forgiveness is based upon the fact that I'm God's child, and he's going to deal with me as a father. Third word, if we confess. Now, when we hear the word confess, we think of the guy confessing a crime. He's acknowledging a fact. That's not what this is. This goes further than that. It is that, but it goes further than that. Confession in the Bible doesn't mean just to acknowledge. It means to agree with the one to whom you're confessing. It means to get over on God's side. Here's a way to think about it. Here I am right here standing here, and over here is the Lord. And when I confess my sins, I say, Lord, today... I confess to you, I had some thoughts that were unpleasing to you, some filthy stuff entered my mind. Here's what confession is. I go over here and I take sides with God against me. I get on God's side and I look at my sin from his perspective, not the human perspective. Well, Lord, everybody does that. 
Yeah, everybody does that, but that's not confession. Confession is taking sides with God against your own sinful behavior. Now, that's implied in that is repentance. The word repentance isn't even in the context here. But do you know what? Repentance is here. Because if I do that, I've changed my mind about my sin, haven't I? And I'm taking sides with, I'm saying what God says about me is true. If we confess, next word, our sins. Notice that's plural. Those are the things that I think that are wrong, the things that I do that are wrong, the things that I, motivations that are wrong and selfish in, the, in my motives. Those are the things, the deeds that I do that are wrong. So confession here is I have offended God and I agree with him about what I've done. And I tell him that. And if I confess it in that way, these sins, plural, the things we've done, the offenses against God, read the rest of the verse. He is faithful. Don't you love that? If you confess it, he's going to forgive you. He is faithful and just to forgive us all our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, you see, confession involves a repentance. If a child really loves his parent, he cares if he displeases the parent. You know what I've watched with little children? You can make an accusation against a little child, and sometimes you have to, but the reality is you can say, you can ask a question like, Mary, did you do that? You know what Mary starts doing? And she clouds up and her lips starts trembling and her little tender heart, she'll start crying because she knows you're unhappy. Well, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could keep that kind of tender heart and tender spirit toward the Heavenly Father? Yeah. Confession involves repentance. Now, if I love the Lord, I want to please the Lord, folks. And that's why Jesus taught us to confess every day. He, he taught us in the model prayer, the Lord's Prayer. Father, forgive us our sins as we forgive those that sin against us. Now, the purpose of confession, let me go back and catch it again. The reason you confess your sins is to restore your fellowship because your sins were all paid for at Calvary, past tense. If you're genuinely saved, even the sins of your future were paid for as far as the penalty of sin is concerned. But you confess so that you can keep the fellowship with the Heavenly Father. You want to please Him. child doesn't confess to his father in order to be the child. The relationship is there. But the child confesses so there's a good relation or fellowship between the two of them. Now, there's a third group. And I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 12, and this is very, very hard. You're not going to hear 
much about this in so many places today. It is about as politically incorrect and about as out of the mainstream as you can get, but it is God's Word, and I've got to preach God's Word, Hebrews chapter 12. And I'm talking about the person who is far away from God, the prodigal son, the person who professes to be a Christian, never goes to church anymore, lives a very profane and very wicked life, and just, just totally out of it, never reads their Bible, never prays, doesn't act like a Christian in any way. The backslider, we call them. That's the Bible word for it, how God deals with this person. And we don't know if that person is saved or not. We can't judge their salvation. We can only see their behaviors. But here's what God's Word says. Chapter 12 of the book of Hebrews, verse 5. Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. Chasten really means he punishes. And he scourgeth. Now, that's a harsh word because that has the idea of the whip, the spanking. He scourgeth every son. Notice we're talking about his sons, his children. We're not talking about unsaved people here. Unsaved people are never chastened of the Lord in this life. Here's a fact. You need to understand it, Christian. God doesn't chasten unbelievers in this life. That's what hell's for. People come to me, well, how is it that the wicked can prosper? Well, because they can do whatever they can achieve in life because their punishment is after this life. Now, so God chastens and he scourgeth every son and every one of us are going to undergo God's chastening according to this verse. And look in verse 6. The chastening that God does here, really that offends the modern mind, doesn't it? See, I'm speaking to a generation who won't chasten their own kids. So why in the world would they want to accept the fact that God chastens every one of his? Just meddling a little bit there. But I'm talking to people who think it's cruel to chasten their own child. Well, God chastens his children, but he doesn't chasten them to inflict pain. He chastens them for correction. It may hurt them, but he's wanting to help them. And there's lots of ways God chastens his children, financial loss, illnesses, a job, even death, unbelievably. One of the verses says, if a man sin a sin not unto death, it's possible that people can get so far from God, he just takes them home so they don't continue to pile up the sin and the evil. So God chastens his children. He does it to inflict not pain, but to to correct their behavior. Okay, look at verse 7. If you endure chastening, and it is endurance, God dealeth with you as with sons. There's the relationship again. For what son is he whom a father chasteneth not? And the word father and son is in that verse. So you see, God deals with 
backsliders as a loving father, even though he may be chastening them. Look in verse 8. If we be without chastisement, whereof all Christians are partakers, then are you bastards and not sons. If a person can sin and sin and sin and sin and sin and go on and on and on away from God, they're not saved. They're not a son. They're illegitimate. Pretty somber stuff, huh? But receive it in the spirit in which I'm preaching it to you. This is God's Word. And, and we live in a PC culture today. We can't say anything bad. Oh, it's got to be positive. Got to lift me up. I'm lifting you up long term. When I beg you to stay close to the Lord and stay confessed up on your sins, I'm lifting you. That is what it takes to lift people. And he says, if you don't ever have chastening from God, then check it up. Check out your salvation. There's something really wrong. And in verse 9, furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh, our natural fathers who corrected us, and we gave them reverence, respect. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? They verily for a few days, for a short span on life, of life on earth, chastened us after their own pleasure. But he chastens us for our eternal profit. And here's the whole purpose of God's correction, his chastening, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now, let me tell you, look up here and hear me. I can tell you're, you're, you're focused on this. God is far more interested in your holiness than he is your happiness. And in this world today, everybody wants to be happy, happy, clappy Christians. Happy, happy. And all the stuff that we think makes us happy. And I say it with all reverence, but God isn't too concerned about my happiness because that's so temporary. Happiness comes from the word happening. God is concerned about me being holy. Look on down to the end of verse 11. He's concerned about me having the fruit of righteousness. And what are the fruits of righteousness? The fruits of the Spirit, same thing. Love, joy, peace, patience, faith, meekness, humility, goodness, righteousness, all those things that are implied in all that. And so God today chastens the person who stays away from the Lord long term because he wants to bring them back and see them live a godly and holy and righteous life. Now, if you're unsaved today, forgiveness for you is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are saved today and living a somewhat normal Christian life, you're an active Christian, forgiveness of your daily sins comes by confessing your sins and forsaking them and going on with the Lord. If you've been away from the Lord for years, then 
you have God's promise of correction and chastening. And if you're not experiencing that, if there's not a lot of bumps in the road of your life right now, then my friend, listen, you need to come to Calvary. You need to get in the family. You need to be saved. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed.